chapter 1. And we're going to look, I think, at the first 13 verses. Now, I know that uh, probably most of us here would profess to be Christians. Some might not. Some might not be very sure. One thing I'm absolutely certain of, though, is that every single person here at some time or other doubts what they believe. And the question of how we know, how do we know what's real? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's sure? And we can get really, really discouraged, I think, especially in our lives when we're, we're going through particular phases. We can get very afraid. We can get discouraged. Um, for a Christian, especially, the doubts cause, which are, are, are thrown at us all the time, come like arrows that wound into our inmost being. And Paul here is, is writing to this church in Ephesus. He's writing to a church which is having problems in different ways, problems because of division between races, problems because of false teaching, and he's bringing in that correct teaching, and he talks about the church being built so that it's a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It's a glorious and wonderful picture of God's church. And I think one of the the ways that the devil attacks us is he makes us incredibly disillusioned with the church. We are, we're used to doing things on our own, and uh, we get exhausted, and we get very, very hurt. And this glorious picture that Paul has is one that, in our experience, we are not sure that we see too much. Now, in this, in the verses that we've got, he, he goes into some stuff that's that in one sense is pretty heavy, and in another sense, it's fairly straightforward. He, he is actually talking about prayer. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, and if you go to verse 14, he says, for this reason I kneel. Both the for this reasons are referring back into chapter 2. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, please do take one from the back, because you may find this a bit difficult, because we have to go back and forward in, in the chapters. Now, verses 2 to 13, which is what we're looking at this evening, are really Paul doing what Paul does brilliantly well, being completely unstructured and uh, heading off in a different direction. He's saying, because God has saved us, because you're dead in sins and trespasses, because you've been brought into His kingdom, because there's this wonderful picture of you being members of God's household, he says, "I, I, I kneel and I pray that you would know the depth and love of Jesus. And next Sunday morning, we're going to look at what that means. But it's this lengthy interruption where he's explaining how they can know and why they should be listening to him, why we should listen to these words as being the words of God. He explains about, he's writing to Gentiles, and he explains about his conversion as a Jew and the ministry given to him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's in prison. His own personal circumstances are that he is in prison. He's been given a great work to do. If you were to go back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 to 29, 
He says the same thing to the Colossians. This is just an expansion of that. So, there are um, three sentences that he has. In the original language, Paul sometimes, like virtually half of Ephesians 1, it's just one sentence. Paul really knew how to string things together. But there are three sentences here, and we're going to deal with each one. Verses 2 to 7, I've headed it, the revelation of the mystery. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul says, I was told something. God has given me grace, not for myself, but for you. For us, in other words. That is, and he explains it, it's the mystery made known to me by revelation. What is a mystery? If, um, you know, you're a young lady and you, meet, uh, you write home to your mom and say, I met this tall, dark, mysterious stranger. There's a quality, an idea about mystery, historia, esoteric, something that is hidden. Paul says there's something that was hidden, but now it has been revealed. It was a secret, but now it's an open secret. He says that he has been given a commission. Uh, He uses a word which is the idea of being manager of a large estate, and the manager puts the affairs into the hands of his servants. And Paul said, I was given a commission, and my commission was to tell you the mystery that has long been hidden, a mystery that is made known to me by revelation. And that's a really important word. How do we know? I waste probably far too much time uh, arguing with people who are not Christians seeking to give reasons to believe. Their biggest problem is not that they don't have reasons. They need reasons. But that's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is that their eyes are shut, and no matter what you say, they can't see it. So it's as though you were in here just now, and your eyes are shut, and I said, shut your eyes. And then I said, um, have a look. Can you see what's happened to those windows? And in actual fact, if you went outside, you would see it a whole lot better, especially when it's darker. Please do so. And you keep your eyes shut, and you say, no, I can't see anything. We need revelation. There is reason, absolutely. There are facts, absolutely. The facts that God has given us all around us of His beautiful creation. The facts of history. The facts of experience. But we need something more. We need things to be revealed to us because our minds are darkened. Our foolish hearts are darkened. And as Christians, we believe absolutely in God's revelation. How do we know? Now, the trouble is, an awful lot of Christians will say, well, you ask me how I know He lives, He lives within my heart. And what they mean by that is, I've had this experience, I've had this feeling, which is not to be discounted, but it's not enough because our experiences can be wrong. We can misinterpret our experiences. How do we know? We know because God reveals Himself, and particularly in the gospel. Paul says in the gospel, in the Old Testament, there were hints of the gospel. This revelation was, verse 5, was not known to men, not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit 
to God's holy apostles and prophets. There were hints of the good news in the Old Testament. There were pointers towards the good news. The, the, the gospel is still there, but it's very much a mystery. But now it's been revealed. That's especially uh, true to the apostles and prophets. If you go back to Galatians chapter 1, just flick back uh, Paul's four letters here. Go back to Galatians chapter 1 and look at verse 11. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's Paul's Damascus road experience. And more than that, if you go into chapter 2 of Galatians, he says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, don't believe this because of me. Don't believe this because this is clever argument. Don't believe this because you've had a great experience, but believe this because God has revealed it. And that's why the Bible is so important to us. We sometimes treat the Bible in a kind of pick-and-mix fashion, or we treat the Bible as though it was unsure, uncertain, as though we had the ability to sit in judgment upon the Bible. But this book is the revelation of God. We would not know about Jesus. We would not experience Jesus if it were not for the Word of God. And Paul says, I've got this great message, this message of reconciliation and unity between different peoples, between Jew and Gentile. And he says, I'm not making it up. This is something that God has revealed. This is the great mystery. In uh, verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, the relationship uh, between Christianity and the Jews. There have been in the history of the church sometimes people who are very anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, and they, they justify it or they attempt to justify it from the Bible. And yet, here is Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to Greeks, the apostle to Romans, the apostle to non-Jews. And he's saying, there's a great mystery that God has revealed, and that mystery is, you and the Jews are going to be together in one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I think, as Christians, we ought to long for more Jewish people to become believers in Jesus. We ought to tell them that our Savior is a Jew, that the apostles who had revealed to them who Jesus is and who God is were also Jews, and we long to share in that unity. But it's a unity that can only come through the good news about Jesus Christ. So, there's a revelation. How do you know? How... how do you know things are true? What do you, how do you have surety and certainty? It comes from God's revelation 
to us. I have a very good friend who he understands intellectually the gospel. He gets the gospel. He can explain the gospel. But his big problem is simply this. Within himself, he feels the condemnation. He feels, he doesn't feel that the gospel applies to him. If he was to rely on his feeling, his doubts, the darkness that's in his own heart, the darkness that's in his own mind, he would, he would give up in complete despair. Sometimes I sense the presence of God. Sometimes I feel the glory of God. Sometimes I feel and see in my mind and in my heart the beauty of Jesus Christ. And other times it's darkness and it's mist and it's confusion. And if I was to rely on what I feel, then my Christianity would be shattered many times but I rely on what God has said. Let God be true and every man a liar. And an interesting thing for me is I keep coming back to the Bible and although the devil keeps saying, right, like he did at the very beginning with Eve, did God really say, did God really say, did God really say, that's always his big temptation. But I keep coming back to the Bible and saying, this is the word of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, again, is why it's so important that we come and we hear God's Word. Sometimes I feel like a doctor who has patients, and the patients say, well, I'm not going to go and see the doctor today because I'm not feeling very well. And they refuse to go, and they refuse to take their medicine or to get their medicine. And I feel like that sometimes when I hear of Christians who are struggling, who are uh, falling away, who are turning back. And they say, oh, I just I can't go to church. I can't. Why not? Well, I'm just struggling. I'm, I'm, I've got full of these doubts. And so, uh-huh. And? That's why you should come. You should come and hear God's Word. You want God to speak to you. This is how He speaks, through His revelation. It may happen that you can be sitting at home and an angel will come and speak to you. It may happen that something extraordinary will happen. But by definition, it is extraordinary. But every single Lord's Day when we gather together, we are, God is revealing Himself to us. He's showing Himself to us. And I know that I need to have God's Word embedded in my mind, explained to my heart. And I'm so thankful for it. So there's this mystery. Second thing is verses 8 to 12 is a second sentence where Paul talks about his role as apostle to the Gentiles. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Less than the least of all God's people. Now, this is actually, there's a little bit of Glaswegian humor in here. Um, I accept that Paul wasn't Glaswegian, as far as I know, never came to Glasgow. But Paulus, the name Paulus, you know what it means? It means little or small. And Paul was a man, we understand anyway from history, that he was a man of small stature. And really, it's kind of like his nickname nickname is the wee man. And Paul is saying, really, he's saying, I'm the wee man. 
I'm the least of all God's people. I don't think he's referring particularly to his stature. He's talking about how he perceives himself in the light of the gospel. It's not false humility. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy 1, 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy was written towards the end of Paul's life. And you will note in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He says, I am. Now, you might think, how is it hopeful, how is it reassuring, how is it comforting, how is it enlivening to be conscious that you are the worst of sinners? Paul says, I, I'm an, I've been given this grace to preach to the Gentiles the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it's grace because I don't deserve it. I've shown nothing to Christ but hatred, and He has shown nothing to me but love. He has this tremendous sense of privilege. He calls himself a servant. He's not the master. He's a servant of the gospel. And he is called to preach. The word is evangelize. To preach the gospel is to evangelize, to announce good news, to make plain. Another word that's used here is enlighten. Photomist. This is the original Photoshop, the original light being poured in. And Paul says, I've been given this tremendous gift, this tremendous privilege to tell people, not about myself, because I'm just the wee man, but to tell people about Jesus Christ, to make it known, to, through that, to see people being converted to Christ, to make it known, he says, to everyone. Make it known to them all. And it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 8, if you go over to that, you'll see this, an example of it. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And he goes on to talk about how the light comes in and wakes up the sleeper and the gospel comes in and wakes up the dead. And we've got these tremendous opportunities. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, if you can find that, it's obviously after 1 Corinthians, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and chapter 4, he, use, he uses again this, this image and this picture. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is an extraordinary privilege to be able to know and to share God's Word. 
and to build God's people up through that. In, uh, <clears throat> he talks about God having created all things back in Ephesians 3 verse 9, and God's intention being that He would build up His church. His intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. We pray, we teach, we preach in order that the light would come and that the church in all its variety would uh, be seen. I consider it a tremendous privilege to be alive. I consider it a tremendous privilege to eat and to drink and to give thanks for all the gifts that God has given. And I consider it an unspeakable privilege to be able to come and to share God's Word. It's so funny that um, <laughs> I get so many personal attacks getting involved with uh, discussing with people. And I'm not innocent. Sometimes I provoke it. You know, calling my atheist friends new fundamentalist atheists probably doesn't help matters. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'd think all this stuff would really, really get to you. But it really doesn't matter. Because if you get the opportunity to tell people about Jesus, Myself and Annabel were down in London uh, last weekend, and I have to be uh, careful, I say, but we had a great time anyway. You know, it was full of panache, and it was really enjoyable. Um, but uh, on Monday, on the Monday evening, you know, I know how to give a girl a good time. We went and did a debate, uh, not between ourselves, but I did a debate with the uh, chairman of the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender society. And it was, it was a very, very interesting debate. I think it's be online this week. But there was a, um, a black Pentecostal brother who, who basically bowled me an underarm in that he asked a question. And the question, he says, I'd like to ask both uh, speakers, I would like to ask you both, what is your hope? And my opponent, who was, is also uh, an advisor to the Liberal Democrats and his, the current policy on gay marriage is largely his uh, doing. It was a motion he put to the Liberal Democrat conference. He stood up and said, um, my hope is that we will be able to reduce tax for people so that people who earn less than 10000 don't pay any tax. And my head was just... It took me ages to try and get around that. That's your hope. That's why you're living, so that you can reduce tax. And I didn't know what, what else to say, but I, I, th I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to uh, be all theological and quote um, some lines from a hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Uh, at which point... Uh, my black Pentecostal friends shouted, Amen, hallelujah, in the middle of this debate, which was great. But, do you know what? Contrast those two things. I don't think that my opponent was being insincere, and I think he genuinely meant what he said, and what he's aiming for is a good thing. Is that really your hope? You think about where your hope is, you know, you're, you're stuffed. I mean, what, what is your hope today? Not, not how do you feel, not what you think is going to happen to you tomorrow, but what is your hope? And our hope comes from the gospel. 
This marvelous, marvelous message. A message that's so wonderful. Look what he says. He says, I want it to be shown through the church. And who's he showing it to? Verse 10, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What's basically going on here is the angels and the demons are saying, how's God going to rescue this one then? Here's the world that he created that he saw was good. It's been stuffed up. It's in a mess. Along comes, he chooses the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And every single time, the history of the Old Testament is they stuff up, they get it wrong. How is God going to save these people and remain God? How is God going to be able to save people and be just? And they don't know. And they didn't know. The devil didn't know. Nobody knew. Father, Son, and Spirit knew. Nobody else knew. And then what? Now they look at us. Poor, pathetic us. The church. And C.S. Lewis has this in the Screwtape Letters, which is just a wonderful, wonderful book. He has the senior devil saying to the junior devil, when we look at these creatures, we just, we just loathe them because they're loathsome. He looks at them and he loves them. And he's turning them into something lovely. Yuck. That's the extraordinary thing that is happening to us. The angels look and they see us here in this church, in other churches throughout this city, in other churches throughout this country and this world, where God's word is honored and God's people seek to serve him, twisted and sick and depressed and discouraged and and, and sinful as we are. And the angels go, wow, that's what you're doing. You're turning these rebels into saints. You're turning these sinners and rejects into children, sons and daughters of God. They see the unity in the church and they're amazed. And so verse 12 tells us, in him, this is what Christ's purpose is, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We may go to God as a young child goes to their father. We have access into the holiest. There are plenty of people who say, yeah, I can go to God anytime I like, I can do what I want and so on. They don't get near God because they have no idea who God is and they have no idea who they are. But here's the extraordinary message in the gospel is that God says, look, I know your pain. I know your sorrow. I know your hurt. I know your darkness. I know your doubts. I know your fears. I know the things that you're even unwilling to admit to yourself because you're so scared of them. I know all those things and I still love you and I still call you. This is the good news of the gospel. You have access to come to me. You may approach me with freedom and confidence. Not, oh God, I'm not sure if I can come to you because I've done this, because I've done that. No, no. Because of what I have done, you may approach me with freedom and confidence. Paul was in a Roman cell. He was in prison. The doors were closed and bolted, but Paul had an open door to God. I don't know your personal circumstances. I've long ago given up claiming to be able to understand anybody, never mind myself. But I do know this, that whatever doors are bolted and shut in your life just now, whatever fears you may have, there is one door that is open and that is always open, and that is the way to God through Jesus Christ. That is never, ever shut. You have an open door to God. Verse 13 is the last sentence. It's a very short one. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. 
Paul's circumstances weren't great. It was an extremely discouraging circumstances. circumstance. Perhaps half the apostles were already dead. Maybe more. Maybe it's only John that was left. The churches are breaking his heart. The Ephesians are disunited, torn by strife. The Romans, the same problem. Paul talks about how that he feels the birth pains of the church all over again. And he goes to Rome to help, and he ends up in prison. Why was he arrested? Because he stood for Gentile equality with the Jews, and this really upset some people. He was arrested because he undermined the sense of privilege that some people had. What had happened, as we know, is Paul had gone to Rome to get a collection from the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem, thinking that this would cement the unity and love they were supposed to have. The Jewish Christians had harassed him, but instead he went into danger for them, and he ultimately died as a martyr to the cause of Christian unity. Has something not gone wrong that we live in a church culture where we continually split we continually split. And sometimes we split about the tiniest things. I find it bizarre that people won't split about major issues within the church, such as when the Word of God is completely despised. Listen to a service this morning, and if I'd been in that church, I would have been up and walked out after 10 minutes because it was blasphemous and dishonoring to Jesus Christ, going the very opposite of what's being taught here. And yet, over personalities, over personal tastes, over styles of worship, over perceived hurts, whether real or unreal, we split and we split and we split. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm in prison for this gospel which unites people and brings things together. And you'll notice that there's no bitterness in him, not a trace of bitterness here. He's very unselfish. It was because of the Gentiles he was in prison. But even in prison, he's not worried about himself, but, but about the effect his imprisonment will have on others. He says to the Gentiles, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by what's happened to me. Look, my suffering is for your glory. He was there for a worthwhile cause, and they should be proud of it. Let me offer a very simple principle that each of us should bear in mind. Spiritual work can only be done by people who put themselves out. You get irritated and angry because you think people take advantage of you, because you're worn out, because of all the different things that are happening. But you're a Christian. And when you came to Christ, you prayed, didn't you? Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee, or something like that. You gave Jesus your life, and he took you seriously. And now you're moaning because you're being put out one of the curses. We are in the midst of an enormous battle in the church, and it's not about gay marriage. It's about the darkness of Satan, and it's the darkness that engulfs a culture when it rejects the gospel. And God says, go your own way. I uh, watched um, BBC Four documentary about Fleetwood Mac, uh, and for those of you who know nothing about Fleetwood Mac, you need to get an education, particularly if you're younger. Uh, and buy the album Rumours and hear it. Fantastic, phenomenal album. 
But watching that documentary was so sad because that album, one of the reasons it's so extraordinary is because it was born out of the absolute pain of broken relationships and, and anger and, and substance abuse and lots and lots of other things that are in there. Human greed and selfishness and self-obsession about myself and my feelings and my relationships. And Paul says, I'm in prison and I'm in prison because of this gospel. And he says, that's for your glory. When you find yourself doing something that you're going, oh, this has made me uncomfortable. You need to think about what Christ has done. I'm astounded that the church even exists at all because we keep wanting stuff that's for our own comfort. We don't want to be put out. God, you've got to fit into my timetable. Um, Liban, who used to worship with us, he, when he went down to Manchester, he joined a church there, and it's a really, really good church, but with a couple of big issues. One of them is they meet on a Monday night, not a Sunday, because Sunday's not convenient for the people. Now, wait a minute. Where did convenience come into it all? Because what's happened now is they meet on a Monday night, and that only suits certain types, basically young yuppies, and it doesn't suit other people. So they're having a church for one particular group of people. Monday night church, Tuesday night church, Wednesday afternoon church, whatever. No, it's not convenient. There are lots of things that we're involved in that are not convenient. But I suspect it wasn't convenient for Jesus to go to the cross. We shouldn't be discouraged when things are tough. We shouldn't even be discouraged when we're worn out. We just go back to the gospel. Look what he does in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of... Sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Verse 11 of that same chapter. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Paul's saying, I'm in prison by the will of God. I'm an announcer of this good news by the will of God. And everything has been worked out, including my imprisonment. It is only the person who believes in the sovereignty of God who can rejoice in every circumstance and even see a prison as an opportunity for fellowship. And whatever personal hurts, fears, doubts, angers that you feel this evening, if you see them in the backlight of the sovereignty of God then you can even rejoice in those. I think that these verses teach us about the centrality of the church. God's the bride of Jesus Christ. The church is central to history. It's God's plan, central to the gospel, central to Christian living. And we've bought into one of the biggest lies and doubts of the devils. I I, I don't really need the church. I'll just go along me and Jesus and a few of my friends, and we'll, we'll get through. And God says, no, I died for the church, and you are the church, and you've got your brothers and sisters, and you have to be together, and you have to show you unity, and it may be an inconvenient truth, and it may be an uncomfortable truth, but you're just not going to make it on your own, because this is for the glory of my son, Jesus Christ, that he can take out of the mess of humanity and mold for himself a people that are so glorious and so wonderful that on the wedding feast, the wedding day of the Lamb, the whole of the universe, all the angels, all the demons, 
everyone is going to look at the church which Christ bought with His own blood and go, wow, that's beautiful, that's stunning, that is incredible. We share together with believers everywhere in the promised in Christ Jesus. We have to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You, you do this, and I do this. We go, yeah, I've heard this. I know this. I've got this. I understand about Jesus. You have no idea. You have no idea. Every time Paul tries to explain about Jesus, he breaks off and goes, oh, the depth, the unsearchable riches, the unsearchable wisdom of Jesus Christ. The blasé, contemporary evangelical attitude. Yeah, I know Jesus. No, you don't. You don't. You don't know Jesus, at least well enough. That's why next week, we're, in the morning, we're going to go on looking about how we may see how deep this love of Jesus Christ is. You know, another thought that just occurs to me is that Jesus never turns away people who come to Him, and He never impoverishes people who come to Him. He has this source of riches that no one else has. You know, every now and then, uh, if you have children, they might come to you and say, Dad, can I get some money? And you say, what do you think I am? A banker? A taxi? Yep, exactly. But there's a limit to how much you can give because you're limited by what you have. Our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus, has given us Jesus Christ. In Christ are unsearchable riches. It means that no matter how deep we go, no matter how far we go, no matter how long we've been believers, we're only scratching the surface of the riches that are in Jesus Christ. You never lose that. You never, ever lose that. And I, my poverty is, and I suspect your poverty is, we're scraping around in the mud for dirt when we have Christ who has these unsearchable riches. How can I know? We'll come back to where we started. How can I know? Where do I get them? Listen to him. He's communicating himself. The Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she would receive Christ. We use that phrase, receive Christ, of someone becoming a Christian. That's true. I'm not saying it's untrue. But I think there are an awful lot of us for whom we are in the church, and we're like the Laodiceans when Christ's knocking at the door, and we're saying, no, we're rich and have need of nothing. And Christ's knocking at the door, and He's saying, I've got so much more for you. If you're not a Christian, I can't even begin to explain the wonders that await you as you come to know Jesus Christ. And I I would plead with you, if you're not a Christian, and you want to find out more about it, speak to me at the door on the way out, and, and... and ask. In fact, as we pray in a moment, please ask Jesus to reveal Himself to you. But if you are a Christian, do what I have to do, which is every single day say, Lord, show me Jesus. Let me see Jesus. Let me experience the unsearchable riches of Christ. You 
God cannot but answer that prayer. You know, Paul's spoken about himself here quite a bit. There are Christians of a false kind of humility who say, oh, I never speak about myself because, uh, you know, no, no. Paul speaks about himself to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. It's not wrong to talk about how the Lord is working in our lives. It's wrong to boast about ourselves, but we boast about Jesus, and that has so much more impact and testimony when people can see, but for them, I can see in them that is really true, and that is really real. God has given us this mystery. You don't have to get a degree to, to understand it. You just need to open your eyes, open your heart, open your mind, and see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. It is a mystery to us. We come to you and we do ask for, first of all, forgiveness for our arrogance and thinking that unless you explain everything to us exactly so that we can judge it and so that we can understand it and apply it, then it's not worth believing. Lord, forgive our arrogance and our stupidity and our ignorance. And help us instead to receive your revelation. There are many prophets who come. There are many people who say, oh, this is from God and that is from God. But Lord, we bless you that in times gone by, you did send the prophets. But in these last days, you have sent us your son, a more sure and more certain word. And we thank you that we have the record of that in both the Old and above all in the New Testaments, that although this letter to Ephesians was written to a group of people long ago, yet also it is written to us, and it tells us of Jesus. We thank you that it's your Word that creates, and it's your Word that recreates. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We thank you that the Word has come to us and continues to come to us. Lord, why should we receive this mystery from you? Purely and simply because of your grace, and we bless you for it. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Lord, thank you for bringing them in to hear your word, and may they respond by opening their hearts and lives to you. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, you know how easily, how so quickly we are prone to wander, prone to turn away. Thank you for your deep, deep love that you keep calling us back and you keep showing us yourself. And we keep thinking, oh, but we can't go back because we, we've done so much harm. We've, we, we've neglected, we've forgotten, we doubt, we fear. And every time you open your arms to the prodigals because of Jesus. And so we love you and we worship you and we... we Go out from this place renewed and encouraged and help us this week somehow in some way to share something of the beauty of Jesus Christ in a world that at times is so ugly. In your name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Center for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.